electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight the knives apparently are out inside Goldman Sachs. Discontent mounting through the ranks reportedly has it reached a tipping point. Escape from San Francisco, the city's largest shopping mall owner, turning over the keys. How much more can the city take? Targeting Gary Gensler, lawmakers unveiling a new plan to oust the SEC chair and overhaul the agency. One of the authors will join us. Employee anger. Action on the rise and a crackdown on remote work, all may be fueling it. Plus, call it a sully side up. The feverish rise in rent may finally be breaking. We'll show you where it could happen first. All that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, as always, good evening here in the East. Good afternoon out West. We're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up tonight on Last Call, has the war on inflation been won? There are some signs. Headline inflation coming in at a rise of just 4% last month. And while 4% is still historically high, it is well off the growth rate of the past two years. The data measures the prices of a bunch of different things. Rent, cars, food, electricity, insurance, and more. So even with the headline decline, remember, it does still mean that most prices are going up, as they always tend to do over time. But we can dig in a little bit more. So first up, what rose the most in prices year over year? Well, in order, it was car repairs soaring, followed by car insurance or car insurance before car repairs. But they're probably related, is my guess. Have a dog? You know it. Pet food's up. Electricity prices on the rise as well. And rent Still sticky, all up more than 5% from last year, but you know that. So what in this report went down? Well, the government shows that gasoline prices dropped 20% from a year ago. Good news, because that's also when oil prices were much higher. What also went down? Appliances a little bit. TVs came down. They, They say airfares dropped as well. We could probably challenge that, at least on some routes And then there's this big headline, the data showing that health insurance had a massive 20 and a half percent drop year over year. Now, that caught our eye. Not only is it a big number, but it's because all the other data on health insurance, employee surveys, the Fed's own favorite index, what's called the PCE, private data, you name it. Look at your look at your pay stub showed health care costs rising recently. But we learned that this measure of inflation usually and uses an extremely complex formula to try to figure out what healthcare costs really are. Now, I posted that formula to Twitter. You might have to be a math PhD to figure it out. But either way, it's good news, if true. But if you are seeing a drop in health insurance costs, please let us know. Because we would not only like to see it, but we'd also, you know, maybe like to shop around for ourselves. All right. 
Regardless of what we think about this data, it certainly may matter for the Federal Reserve, which has another interest rate decision tomorrow. Let's talk about all this with QI Research CEO and Chief Strategist Danielle DiMartino Booth and Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Solus Alternative Asset Management. Dan, Danielle, thank you both very much. Before we get to the Fed, let's talk about the data. Good news, the headline inflation is down. But listen, Danielle, I'm sorry, I'm not putting on my tinfoil hat, but when I see health insurance costs down 20%, color me a little confused. Uh, Absolutely. And when you start to talk about mathematical formulas that require a PhD because you're imputing costs of reimbursement, well, okay, I lost you and you probably lost everybody on Twitter as well. (laughs) We just lost the entire audience. Exactly. It's gobbledygook, Brian. But more importantly, the chief driver of the core CPI since 2020, post-pandemic, has been used car pricing. At QI, we found that there's exactly a two-month lag between when Mannheim used car prices decline and when we see that manifest in the core CPI. Well, guess what? That's not gonna show up until next month and the month that follows. What we saw today in 34% of the increase in core CPI, 34% was just one driver, used car prices that rose. And, and, And again, that's a very distorting figure. Also where I'm sitting right here in New York City, 11% of shelter rent in the entire uh, uh, shelter rent uh, calculation, that is coming through with a major lag, as you've read, as you've seen. Rents here in Manhattan are rising uh, well after that of the rest Mm. of the country, and they're having a disproportionate effect on shelter inflation. That's also going to turn in coming months, and I think the Fed knows this. Dan, do you think inflation really is coming down? Yeah, I mean, listen, the inflation rate itself is certainly slowing, and, and the, both, both of you guys touched on a couple of the reasons why. And I just want to emphasize a point Danielle just made, which is over the next few months, it should continue doing so. But I also want to emphasize that there is an overbearing focus on the year-over-year rate. Will inflation's down to 4% from 5% from a peak of 9%? On a year-over-year basis, there's almost nothing that will stop that year-over-year rate from coming down. What we really should be doing is looking at the month-over-month rate. Mm. Excuse me. And not that that doesn't tell a similar story. That is, inflation is much less acute today than it was 6, 9, 12 months ago. But it doesn't tell the exact same story that the headline rate does. But but to answer your question, yes, it's coming down. Okay, and agreed, Dan, because some of the math I've seen, and I won't say where, but some of the math I've seen on the Twitter has suggested using their math, if you go from 9% to 4%, we have a 100% drop in inflation. It's zero. Everything is free. That's not how you do it. Just if anybody in D.C. is listening, you don't calculate percentage changes over percentage changes. Am I right, Dan? No, that, that's, I certainly wouldn't say inflation was down 100%. That would More not, than 100%. That would not be it's, everything statement. is free. They're giving it away. Yeah, no, that's, that's not accurate. I, I think what, but th- listen, to get back on, on this a serious topic here, I, I think the more important conversation here about inflation relates to the cost of living crisis that, that uh, low and, and medium income Americans are dealing with right now. While the rate of inflation is slowing, both on a year over year and month over month rate, the total price level of all the goods and services that people purchase in the economy mm-hmm. are somewhere between 15 and 20 percent higher today than pre-COVID. And almost surely those prices are not going to go down. The rate of increase is slowing and perhaps it will stall, but it's probably not going to go down. And that's going to be with us for for many years. I love the point. I love the point, Danielle, because, again, we're going to talk about the Fed. Tomorrow we got the Fed meeting. They may raise rates. They may not. Here's the reality to Dan's point. 
if you have if you have to drive, if you have to rent, if you have to eat, your costs are well higher than a couple of years ago. We can insert reason here. Is there anything the Federal Reserve can do to help, you know, middle and working class Americans other than I'm sorry to say crash the economy or slow it down greatly? which is going to result in job losses, because maybe that's the only way some of these costs are going to come down. Look, Brian, the wrecking ball has already been slung. The, the Fed has done maybe more than it even should have done. But to Dan's point, if, if we were having this discussion 12 months ago, we were talking about new rental leases being up appreciably. Now, existing landlords, have they've all figured it out. They figured it out that it's really expensive to move. And so they're they're jacking up existing leases when people don't want to go through the trouble or expense of moving. That will shift. That will change as we have more uh, supply coming online of, of new apartment construction in the next 18 months oh. than we've had in our lifetimes. But that doesn't matter for, for Joe Q and Jane Q working Americans right now. It doesn't matter that it's a lot cheaper to make an omelet. There are bigger life expenses than egg prices coming down the most since whatever, 1951. Agreed. And yeah. I, I know we can't, Dan, we'll talk tomorrow about the Fed, what they may do. And you can give us your advice, whether you think they're going to raise rates or not, or do it again when they meet again in a month. I would love to just get your own pal in a room and say, hey, why would you guys keep stimulating when it was clear that the economy was booming for a year while you kept stimulating? And now, yeah, that, you, now you've got to break out the wrecking ball. We, we, it's, it's amazing how short our memories have become. Well, I would just disagree in the sense Good. that the, the, the people I talked to uh, were well aware in the moment, forget in retrospect, that the Fed was providing too much accommodation for too long. Uh, and this, that comes from someone who was not hypercritical of the Fed in the 2010s. But I think it was pretty clear that they, they are now paying the price for, uh, for keeping policy too accommodative for too long. Uh, and it's it's uh, listen, I mean, Jay Powell said there's going to be pain. The labor market hasn't felt it but, yet. And maybe it doesn't. But that's probably what's coming down the pike. I know we got to go, Danielle. But they're not you know what? To be and I like Jay Powell. I'm sure they're not paying the price. People trying to afford yeah, no, a median priced home it, it paying no, the price. No, they're certainly not paying the price. They don't feel the pain of their own policy. That's been a problem that that's been an entrenched problem. Uh, but what I want to know tomorrow Brian, is whether or not the, the press pool is going to be ungagged and allowed to ask about quantitative tightening, because it doesn't matter if rate hikes have been discontinued or put on pause. What we want to know about is if there's going you know. to be continued tightening in the form of continuing to shrink that balance sheet. QE, QT, there's got to be some letters in between that can make us all happy, right? Somebody get Pat Sajak on the show. Danielle, Dan, thank you both very much. You know, he's retiring, so he's got some flexibility coming up in a year. All right, in the meantime, Here's what happened to your money today, and it was another good day for the major averages. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all rising. NASDAQ up 10% in a month. How about that? Led by many big names, Tesla, NVIDIA, Netflix, and more. Inside the market today, the biggest winner of the day, regional bank, Comerica. Biggest loser, AMD, which despite today has been pretty red hot lately. Also, quick look at the futures. See how things are shaping up. Mixed bag. Don't put too much weight in that. All right, we are just getting started. Up next, are the knives out? Internally, for Goldman CEO David Solomon, a new report says they may be, but could this all just be Wall Street gossip? The stock is doing great. Plus, bye-bye, city by the bay. San Francisco's largest mall operator giving up on the city and handing over the keys. Will we soon be talking about a bailout for San Francisco?
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories we'll be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, a shocking report from the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. explicitly warned Ukraine's government to not attack Russia's Nord Stream pipeline. The CIA delivering that message last June. It reportedly received detailed information about a Ukrainian plot targeting the pipeline. But as we know, the pipeline was blown up in September. Now, Ukraine says it had nothing to do with that attack. Pipeline is one of the main energy connections between Russia and Europe. Next up, the U.S. plans to buy 12 million barrels of oil this year. That according to Bloomberg. Now, that purchase would help refill a tiny portion of our emergency reserves and already accounts for 6 million barrels purchased for the SPR. Speaking of oil, a quick programming note for you. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be sitting down with the CEO of Shell, Wael Swan, at the New York Stock Exchange. That interview will be on Squawk Box live, 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Shell making a big pivot. We'll learn more about it live with Wael Swan of Shell tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. Tune in to Squawk. All right, next up here on Last Call, the knives apparently are out at Goldman Sachs. CEO David Solomon is the target of an eye-opening new report in the Wall Street Journal. It highlights spreading internal strife at the company over parts of his leadership and some of his extracurricular activities, namely his DJing hobby, DJ Saul. The report is just one of many that have been published in the past year regarding a little discontent with Solomon. But is this all just gossip and maybe even, dare we say, some jealousy. Remember, Goldman, still considered by many to be one of, if not the, preeminent banks to work for in the world. Joining us now is Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo analyst, managing director and head of U.S. large cap research, who also brought in some records like LPs. What's going on? Well, all this talk about being a DJ, you know, I'm in the job of being a researcher, so I did some research today. Okay. And I went to a store in Times Square, and uh, they have information on becoming a DJ. There's DJ classes. Okay. And I think all this brouhaha about the CEO of Goldman Sachs, if you're a CEO of a bank, are you supposed to just be sipping rosé in the Hamptons? That's or, right. Why or not? Play, some play? people golf. Some people race sailboats. Why can't he DJ? So I'm trying to immerse myself in that culture and understand it more. So if I take lessons, Brian, I can give this to you. This was $1.99. So that's below uh, any, you know, budgets or something like that. So... <laughs> So I think your record. Okay, was it was a disco record? You know, I thought I didn't know. I just your, wanted your the era. broken record okay, analogy well. slash metaphor. I can never remember which is which. <laughs> Everybody focuses on Solomon's DJ, right? But here's the reality. Let's show it. There's in a year, Goldman Sachs up 20%, second only to JP Morgan Chase, outperforming Morgan Stanley, outperforming Citigroup. Why am I still holding a broken record? And outperforming Bank of America. So investors shouldn't be too upset. Well, I'd say you could say is a glass 70% full or 30% empty. The part that's 30% empty, Brian, is their foray into consumer banking. That was just from day one. I didn't understand it. I didn't Marcus. think it made sense. 
Mark is terrible down, name, but that wasn't him. Well, there was other people involved. Lloyd Blankfein, the prior CEO, started that, and he continued that, so he should have stopped it. Now they're selling off all the Marcus loans, some of this advance of the consumer business, and they bought this consumer lending business, Green Sky, which is now going to sell and probably take right down. So 30% of the company, you can say, is not as good as the rest. But the other 70%, instead of spinning records, you know, they're breaking records. They had... Since last decade, there you go. Okay, so, well, take it so, a page. Since last decade, take a page from you. Since last decade, they've gained more market share than any other bank. They're breaking records with that. Okay. According to a guy named Mike Mayo, I think you know him because he's you. Number one in mergers for 20 consecutive years. Record. So where's breaking, the discontent? I thought the where's the, the whole thing? Everybody's knives out. He's doomed. And, oh, the revenues at Goldman Sachs firm-wide the last two years, two years ago was a record, last year was the second best, breaking records. So outside of Goldman Sachs, so what's the he's spinning records inside, he's breaking records in 70% of the business. So what's the journal story? What's all the, 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 the talking? That's my... It's you know. that other 30% where they have some write-downs on some of their private investments, the write-downs on some businesses they bought, and frankly, headcount has grown 42% since David Solomon took over as CEO. There's too many mouths to feed, and he's not paying everybody as much as they'd like at a time when you have this investment banking stay lower for longer. But guess what, Brian? There are green shoots out there. As the Fed finishes raising rates, you're likely to see the investment bank backlog, investment banking backlog start to convert. And you're going to see Goldman Sachs stock, I think, accelerate quite a bit. And by the way, under David Solomon. So buy, buy Goldman Sachs stock. You think g- higher rates are good for Goldman and maybe other banks? Well, not. I mean, when the Fed's done raising rates, you're Which done. Which could with be the, tomorrow. You're done with the debt ceiling. When the Fed's done raising rates, then I do think you get some of these green shoots to materialize into some strong investment banking growth for Goldman Sachs. And you don't want to be short Goldman Sachs during an investment banking, you know, kind of boom, boomlet at least. By the way, earnings have doubled for the last five years under David So Solomon. what's the beef? That's the thing. He's not. It's the other third. It's the, what, who cares if he DJs? And he's also not trying to win a popularity contest. Goldman's been public for almost a quarter of a century. Only now under David Solomon are they running themselves like a public company with more controls. And Goldman got in trouble over the years by getting too close yeah. to the line and going over it. So there's more controls. Uh, he's kind of put more corporate structure around that. Not everybody likes I, that. You know what? I'd rather see I'd rather see the DJ CEO than like some guy in the golf course like, yeah, I just put in four hotels on Baltic, JB. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing wrong. By the way, I got to apologize to Johnny Copeland, the Johnny Copeland Orchestra and the Atmosphere Strut. I, I don't I'm sure it's a great record. And now it's all broken. Like, I, I'm sure, I know you have a good collection, though. I back do. I got plenty more. This was yours, though. So I should apologize to Mike Mayo. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it, Mike. All right. Up next, a new blow for San Francisco. As one of the biggest businesses in the city hands over the keys, could we soon be talking about a bailout for the city by the bay? Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Time now for your last call watch list. First up is Tesla. There is still no exit ramp for that stock's winning streak. Shares up again. They're now up a lucky 13 straight sessions. For a market cap gain of a cool $240 billion, about a 140% jump this year. In other words, Elon Musk and many investors just keep printing money. Next up is NVIDIA, officially a part of the trillion-dollar stock club. The chipmaker closing above that milestone for the very first time, only the seventh public company ever to do so. And speaking of hot stocks, at least lately, <laughs> we're watching SoFi. Shares jumping more than 4% today. They have nearly doubled in the past month. The upcoming end of the federal student loan forbearance helping drive the run along with speculation. The Supreme Court will strike down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. SoFi is a major player in student loan refinancing. All right, now to a more troubling topic, and that is the continued hollowing out of San Francisco as another major company has decided to leave. Mall owner Westfield is giving up on its massive city center mall and giving it back to the lender. They cite challenging operating conditions. This is a month after their core tenant, Nordstrom, left the mall in part because of, quote, unsafe conditions and lack of enforcement against rampant criminal activity. Now, while San Francisco's violent crime rate is below that of many other large cities and is actually fairly stable over the past few years, Things like car thefts are soaring up 50% from just seven years ago. And sadly, there was also a mass shooting in San Francisco over the weekend. Westfield's exit adds to a growing list of high-level departures from the city, which includes the aforementioned Nordstrom, a Big Whole Foods, The Gap, Banana Republic, H&M, the Hilton Union Square Hotel, the biggest hotel, by the way, in the city, Park 55, and Salesforce, leaving the 30-story building named after Salesforce along with the closures of a number of major pharmaceutical retail change. Joining us now with some on-the-ground insight is San Francisco Standard reporter Kevin Trong. Kevin, it's good to have you back on. And listen, I've been following this. I've been posting about this. I love the city. I was there not that, you know, not that long ago. It was, I almost, there's almost parts of the city where you want to cry because of what you see and you feel for the people that are addicted and involved as well. Are we overstating what is happening in San Francisco? What I would say, Brian, is that we're really in a tale of two cities. Um, a lot of the things that you mentioned in your uh, lead up are happening in the downtown core, which is impacted by some of the problems that you outline, things like public safety, rising retail crime, property crime. Um, but at the same time, in some of the outer neighborhoods, you're seeing a vibrancy that I haven't seen since before COVID. Um, you know, new businesses opening, uh, more uh, activity, more foot traffic, uh, sales tax actually going up. Um, and that's not to negate what's happening in the former example. But I, I, I do think that's a little bit more of a, a fuller picture that a lot of folks aren't getting necessarily on social I, media. I think that's fair. But, you know, San Francisco is a very unique city like Manhattan in that it's extremely tight. It's condensed. It's surrounded by water. Los Angeles has a higher percentage of homeless on a popula population basis, but it's also widely spread out and doesn't really have that walking central business district. And I think that's the issue with San Francisco is that so much of what we're seeing, not on social media, but just by going there, Kevin, 
is that it's in Union Square, it's in the Embarcadero, it's in Fisherman's Wharf, it's in the theater district where the tourists go or used to go. Yeah, and I, I, I think you're right there, Brian. Um, and the problem, like you said, with San Francisco is that the uh, troubled areas, which, like you mentioned, every city has, are really dedicated or really centered in the center of the city. So a lot of folks, that, that's close to some of the tourist hotels um, that you mentioned and some of the tourist hotels that are uh, kind of uh, facing trouble currently. Um, now, the city has done a kind of concerted effort to post uh, ambassadors, more police, um, more eyes out there, particularly in some of the tourist hotspots, whether that's Union Square, Fisherman's yeah. Wharf. But it's not, uh, but definitely it's it's fair to say that some of the issues that used to be a little bit more um, limited are, are spreading out. Uh, just quickly on that, you know, the, I, will, I, will, I will agree and say the lazy and easy thing to do is to blame crime, right? Violent crime rates have been stable for years. Property crime is up. The car thefts we just mentioned up 50% in seven years. But the crime came, I think, Kevin, because the city was hollowed out by COVID, pandemic. People left. The, the people who could leave did. Is there blame not on, I'm not saying criminals are not to blame, but is there also blame on the policies of three years ago, which gutted the city for longer periods of time than many other places? Definitely. I mean, well, it's it's easy to say that. Uh, well, what's clear is that San Francisco was the first city to shut down and it remained shut down longer than pretty much um, most cities in America. And that mm -hmm. sort of led to a retraining of the workforce that used to work downtown. Um, a lot of the folks that used to come in, swell the population two, three times on a daily basis, just didn't come in. Uh, San Francisco has been on the forefront of the work, remote work revolution, although there's some pushback by some large companies I'm sure you've discussed. Um, it really still is the leader. Now, with that lack of population, with that lack of economic vitality, that lack of foot traffic, it's pretty easy to see the cascading impacts that has to local businesses and honestly increase visibility to some of those issues right. around homelessness or public safety that just, you mentioned. Some of the biggest things that why Manhattan is still an extremely safe place is just the sheer number of people it's just when there's a lot of people around, it may be harder for bad things to happen. Kevin Trong, look forward to reading more of your work. We're going to be out there hopefully soon. Bring the show there as well. Show America what's really going on. And by the way, try to show some optimistic side to one of the great American cities. All right. Well, big businesses are not the only ones leaving the area. Your next guest pulled his small business out of downtown San Francisco due to crime. What type of business? A private security and safety training company. Joining us now is the owner of Red Dragon Private Security and SWAT Academy is Tom Wong. Tom, you heard that. Is there anything you would like to add? You obviously left. Is there hope for San Francisco? How do we fix this? Thank you for having me on, Brian. How we can fix this is actually electing leaders that are focused on balancing the budget, allocating resources where it is uh, uh, beneficial to the public. Right now, we have a city government that is uh, serving themselves. They give accolades and awards to themselves. They're not paying attention to what's going on around them. And it leaves the citizens, the, the businesses around us uh, feeling hopeless, uh, feeling that we, we can't do anything about crime, uh, about our safety, about our family. We can't even raise our children in, in the city. I mean, my business has been broken into. Many ha others have. You know, during the daytime, you get uh, robbed at night when you Go home, your business get burglarized. You were, you were, your business was, you're a security business. Your business was burglarized, Tom. 
Yes. My did you call? Did you did you call the police? And if so, did they come? And if so, how long did it take? Uh, the police are wonderful. They they came right away when we uh, reported it, and they they did their best in trying to find the perpetrators. But they uh, took everything from us. They took our computers, our uniforms, our equipment, uh, the tools that we use to help board up our clients' uh, businesses when they get robbed. Yeah, you know, uh, our cars are not even immune. We have the city have something like 30,000 auto burglaries annually. I mean, that's more auto burglaries than there are cars in the city. And it does have to do with all failed leadership and failed management from the city. Yeah, that, That's what I have to blame. Yeah, I, I don't and, worry. I'm a bigger guy. I don't really worry as much about violent crime, but it's, it's, the, it's the, the, the broken window theory in some cases, right, Tom, where you've got so much, the, the garbage on the street in San Francisco shocked me. Just the level of just sort of just physical... That would seem like something easy to fix, just picking up the garbage. Correct. And I agree with you. We have to find a way to fix the broken window there. We have to empower the citizens, the community to stand up and protect each other. And my training facility helps facilitate that, help the community. I wish the city can come back. I have great hopes for it. I love the city. I would love to transform the city back to its yep. vibrant days. And... Yeah, I think we can do it. We just need better management, better leadership in City Hall. Yeah, want to be optimistic. Like I said, love it. One of the great, great American cities, great global cities, one of the most unique cities. And the reason we focus on it, Tom, so much people are asking is that it is also one of the most important economic cities in America and the world. Tom Wong, thank you both very much. All right, still ahead. Going after Gary Gensler. A new plan in Congress aims to oust the SEC chair and may alter the agency as we know it. One of the lawmakers behind it is here. All right, welcome back. Taking on Gary Gensler. That's what a group of House GOP lawmakers is aiming to do. The SEC Stabilization Act, as it is known, introduced this week by House Majority Whip Tom Emmer and Ohio Congressman Warren Davidson, aims to completely reorganize the SEC, and it would remove current chair Gary Gensler as well and add a sixth commissioner and an executive director to oversee day-to-day operations. Both Davidson and Emmer claim that under Gensler's leadership, the SEC has become politicized. And both also take issue with the current SEC lawsuit against cryptocurrency giant Finance. Joining us now, Ohio Congressman Warren Davidson, representing the great Miami County. Uh, Congressman Davidson, thank you for joining us. What is your biggest beef with SEC Chair Gary Gensler? Boy, it's a long list. Uh, you know, he's been so bad at his job. I mean, frankly, uh, what he's highlighted is we don't just have a Gary Gensler problem. Uh, we have a problem that's structural with the SEC. So part of it is Gary Gensler has been uniquely bad. Um, there's been ru- more rulemakings under his leadership than at any time since Dodd-Frank passed. You know, Dodd-Frank was a major overhaul of the financial regulatory framework, so you would expect lots of rulemaking. All that happened with Gary Gensler is Gary Gensler became chair of the SEC. They've averaged like two rulemakings a month. They normally don't even have a long comment period, so it's short-changed. He clearly doesn't have the legal authority to implement an ESG rule to change the reporting and disclosure requirements for every every publicly traded company, but he's forging ahead anyway. Um, With respect to crypto regulation, uh, it's like Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. They go into endless discovery. Almost no one ever gets a no action letter. 
after years and years of discovery, uh, he's trying to overhaul the market structure for equity markets. We have the best capital markets in the world, and he wants to fundamentally remake them in a way that basically says to retail investors, to protect you, we're going to keep you from participating in the market. That's not investor protection, that's investor exclusion. Uh, and so fundamentally, I think every layer of this has been bad from Gensler, but it highlights really we have to get back to a weaker chairman and a stronger commission. Well, he's not here to defend himself, so I'll push back a little bit, uh, Congressman, which is crypto is new. So anybody in that position is going to be kind of faced with a little bit of confusion because, by the way, they can't even decide who's going to regulate it, whether it's the Commodities Commission, CFTC, or the SEC or some combination. But also ESG, again, like crypto, is new. So he is dealing with some new things. There's not a lot of there's no 50 years of historical precedent here. Yeah, and, you know, what would be the right approach to that is to come to Congress and say, you know, we need clarity. I can go this far in my role as chairman, but I can't go that far. So what we need is a law that would provide clarity. He's doing the exact opposite. He's trying to front-run regulators uh, in other spaces. He's trying to front-run Treasury. He's front-running Congress. We're trying to move a law, and he's basically lobbying and working to kill any le legislative clarity, and that really is Congress's responsibility to provide it. Same on ESG. You know, it's the same sort of thing as, um, you know, the West Virginia versus EPA Supreme Court decision. Whether the EPA should regulate carbon is a different story. They don't have a law that authorizes them to. So the Supreme Court says, um, you know, this isn't a question of whether or not it should be regulated. The question is, the EPA is not authorized to do that. And I think the same thing is going to go with ESG disclosures. It may be that the market says, you know, we would really benefit from having some standardized mm reporting metrics or some disclosure regimes. That's Congress's job. We make the laws, not unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats like Gary Gensler. Well, I, I, you know, the, the, I guess they call it the classic old overreach in, in your view, where, where, again, these are not elected representatives. They are appointed by elected reps, but they're the ones making a lot of rules behind the scenes. Representative Davidson, really appreciate your views. Thank you very much. All right, yeah, now, why, you're very welcome. All right, why not? Let's lighten it up a bit and head now to quicker than the ticker. All the news that matters in the world of business and a gigantic crocodile. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. Stellantis recalling over 354,000 Jeep Grand Cherokees worldwide. The rear coil springs can fall off while the car is being driven. Be careful. All you need is love and AI. Paul McCartney says he's used the technology to, quote, purify John Lennon's voice in a new song to be released later this year. Overstock.com placed a $21 million bid for Bed Bath & Beyond's intellectual property. That head of the company's bankruptcy auction stores are not included in the offer. Speaking of going under, Instant Brands, the maker of the Instant Pot and Pyrex glassware, filing for bankruptcy today. Check fraud on the rise. According to the U.S. Treasury, banks issued 680,000 check fraud reports last year, up from just 350,000 in 2021, merely a double. Crikey, a 10-foot American crocodile found in a Florida pool. Thankfully, it was captured and safely relocated. And that's all the time we've got. That is a big crocodile. All right, coming up. Quiet quitting is suddenly becoming loud confrontation. Why tensions are starting to flare at the office.
All right, welcome back. If you are running or own a business, you might want to listen up. Employees, they are frustrated. They're pushing back and they're looking for better options. At least that's according to Gallup's annual State of the Global Workplace Survey. The majority of employees around the world, the majority, are quiet quitting, which if you heard that term, basically means doing the bare minimum to get by until you're caught, I guess. And when you combine that with active disengagement, a.k.a. loafing, it has the ability to cost the global economy over $8 trillion. And it shouldn't be any surprise what is driving a lot of the dissatisfaction. Over 85% of those surveys cited the company culture, pay, and benefits, as well as their own well-being. Case in point, Google. Its employees are pushing back against the company's return to office crackdown. They're doing it in the form of memes on internal message boards with statements like, check my work, not my badge, meaning being tracked at work. So we know the issue, but how exactly do we fix it? Joining us now with more insight is founder and CEO of career development platform, The Muse, Catherine Minshew, and founder and CEO of Nationwide Staffing and Recruiting Firm, LaSalle Network CEO, Tom Gimbel. Thank you very much for joining us. Catherine, I was looking at some of these results. One in your data, one in four people you surveyed, 75% are planning to look for a job in the next year. Where are they going? So people are on the move. And it's fascinating because that number keeps going up. It's up 10% from last year, despite a tightened labor market. And I think what we're seeing is this renegotiation of the balance of power between employers and employees. Um, thousands of people that we're surveying are telling us they want more flexibility. They want a better workplace culture, more respect in the workplace. Um, and compensation is important, but it's actually not number one. Um, we tend to see uh, learning and growth opportunities and flexible work edge that out, particularly among a Gen Z and millennial user base. I guess now that I'm officially old, Tom, I'm going to have to be the jerk here. So can we put that graphic back up? And I'm going to be the cynical old guy yelling at the cloud. But when I see work-life balance, number one, remote work, number two, or tied, there's a lot of really good workers out there, but there's going to be a lot of people that are basically looking to get paid to not do a lot. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. Yeah, Brian, I think what people are saying is I want what I want. And even though you pay me, what I want is more important. Then go start you your own business, right? Exactly right. And and we, the, the, I actually disagree with Catherine a little bit. The tides are changing. We saw that it was much more of an employee driven market uh, a year ago, even six months ago than it is right now. And that we're not seeing the aggressive counter offers when people uh, resign to get people to stay. We're seeing counter offers, but not the ludicrous amounts that it was 12, 18, 24 months ago when we were having that huge rebound from the pandemic. And I think right now that it's more of a recalibration that we've got a bunch of people who got out of college over the past four years and hadn't worked in a traditional environment. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be companies that are remote. There will be. But the majority of companies are going to be hybrid, if not four days a week in the office a year from now. The, the weird thing is, Catherine, is that the younger folks, Gen Z, some of the younger millennials, because millennials are now in their 40s, the younger millennials, they would benefit, I think, the most from in-person time. Get to know the boss, you know, the guy or the, the woman who may ultimately move on and or promote them. You know, I, I certainly think that that is a piece of the puzzle. And yet, when we survey younger generations, it is just absolutely unquestionable that the preference for remote work is strong. And it's even stronger for women and people of color. Um, in fact, uh, we recently surveyed several thousand women on Fairy Godboss, which is one of the largest career communities exclusively focused on women. 
Only 3% wanted to go back into the office full-time. Roughly 50% wanted to be remote and 47% wanted to be hybrid. So I agree that bosses are going to try and bring people back. Um, I think some companies will have more success than others, and it has to do with what else they're offering and whether they're an employer that's desirable enough that they can both attract great people and go against the preferences of a majority of workers. Well, that's obviously, Tom, you know, listen, if you've got kids, and I have a wife who worked, and and I've got a Somehow, I have a second grader. But, you know, childcare is expensive. It's really expensive. It's hard. Back to the office is expensive. Commuting is expensive. Commuting, I'm sorry to use this word, sucks. It's terrible. In New Jersey, there's potholes where a giraffe would need a ladder to get out of the pothole. The train breaks down. I I totally get it. But we're talking about 75% of people looking to leave their jobs. You know what else sucks, Brian? Eating your vegetables and paying for your mortgage and your rent and and doing all these other things. Or being unemployed. You know what sucks? What sucks is the people that own the dry cleaners and the sundry stores in downtown areas that are now out of business because no one commutes. The mechanic that doesn't have the job anymore. We are a society that feeds on one another. And my favorite argument was people bring up is diversity and, and people of color. And the, the interesting thing is you're not getting any any real connection to people of diverse backgrounds if you're only on camera. When you work next to them, when you see them, when you see, uh, when you talk about what they did this weekend, when you have that downtime, when you go to lunch with them and you break bread with them, that's how you engage with diversity and you create it. Living in your suburban area or your high rise, only being around people who love you is a problem. Quick take on that. I just think it's funny, you know, uh, part of why I started my business was to be the antithesis of this idea, like, works work, it shouldn't be fun, you're lucky to have a paycheck. And I do think that mentality is prevalent. But technology has really changed the game because thousands of of employees can go online and see other workplaces. They can see which businesses are treating their workers in which way. But which workplaces, Catherine, other workplaces. But but the, Catherine, that is a tiny percentage of workers we're talking about here. I think Tom's referring to 85% of workers that could never work remotely. I think, exactly. I think. You're exactly. right. And, Catherine. I think that there are, there are positions which are always going to be required to be in person. But I think the Gallup study was also talking about a lot of knowledge workers, a lot of office workers. And that's where a lot of this conversation is happening. No one's saying that a dry cleaning employee is going to be able to do that job remotely. Unfortunately, um, it's interesting. People are trying to rewrite the rules. And I think everybody has a, you know, has a bet on where it's going to land. Uh, you know what? I completely agree. And maybe we need to do a survey of the truck driver humping their tail at 3.30 in the morning down I-80 to deliver the stuff that we ate remotely during the pandemic. No one ever surveys them. Maybe if we the should survey them. Catherine and Tom, we've got to go. Let's, let's, we're talking about knowledge workers. I get it. Big topic coming up. Relief may finally be in sight for scorching rental prices. A little sully side up. Maybe next. All right. Buying a home may be out of range for a lot of people, but there is a sliver of good news for renters. New data shows that rental prices are finally beginning to cool down a little bit. Take a look at that chart for the Wall Street Journal. It shows that asking rents for a new lease, meaning you're moving into a new spot, you're not renewing your contract, rose just under 2% over the previous 12 months. Yes, still up, but again, down from the insane double-digit increases of a year ago. But of course, it's not all wine and roses on the rental front. Nationwide, rents are still up nearly 9% from a year ago. So where do we go from here? Let's bring in Brown Harris, Stephen CEO, Bess Friedman, Bess. Good to have you back on. Is there any hope out there 
for renters. <laughs> hey, hey, Ryan, good to see you. I do, I do think there's some hope. I think these numbers that we saw today demonstrate that the dynamic is starting to shift. I don't know that renters uh, have the upper hand yet. I think that's going to take some time. Um, and every market is different. I mean, New York City is an outlier. The rental market is really strong here. We're not seeing that shift yet. Uh, and we're in the heart of the rental market in the city and prices are up. Uh, the demand is really high. But in other parts of the country, that's starting to ease up, which will be a good thing for inflation and housing costs. Uh, and remember, the rental market has all this pressure for two reasons. One, uh, because buyers, would-be buyers, have opted to rent because of rates going up. And would-be sellers have also decided not to sell because they're not going to get the same rate that they have. So we're seeing a lot of pressure on the rental market. But I hope that it's starting to change. It, it, would, be it would seem the solution to this would be, and, and we have a segment tomorrow night, RBI is going to be on, on homes and the shortages of homes, just build more Apartments, build more yeah. homes. But yeah, yeah we, need to do, we need to do that. We need to build more homes. I mean, that's really important. But again, like, for example, in New York City, affordable housing is a big discussion that we have. The 421A is really important. We need to get the budget passed here. Uh, but we have to give people incentives so that they do build affordable housing. Um, and so I think there's a lot of gridlock right now in Albany. And so, um, but we do need a lot. We do need new homes. We need people building them. Uh, it's important. We need shelter. You, everybody needs a place uh, to live and to and sleep. And why aren't we best on it? Again, Manhattan... San Francisco, some of these closed cities that are that are, you know, they don't have a lot of physical space to grow. You got to kind of tear something down to build something new. I get that in other places. Why aren't we seeing more built? I think South Florida, we probably are. But but why aren't we seeing it? I mean, inflation, the price of everything is more expensive today. Mm. We saw, listen, the, the Fed implemented 10 consecutive rate hikes. Um, and so everything is more expensive for everyone, labor, uh, the cost of everything. So people have slowed all of that down. Um, and it's going to take some time until we recalibrate. I think we're calling this a recalibration market. That's what we've, we've been describing it as. It's going to take time. Why does it always feel like every recalibration is higher? It does, right? It takes some time. It takes some time. I recalibrated but. my weight up 10 pounds, right? I mean, like, it's, it's, that's how it is. Is, is there a breaking point? I mean, how much can somebody, not, not Ken Griffin, right? Or Peter yeah. Griffin, for that matter, the family guy. How much can someone spend <laughs> on a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment in Manhattan? I mean, 10 grand a month for, like, an average place. I know it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Unfortunately, you hit it. You know your numbers because that's probably about the average. I'm a news no. anchor. I know everything, or at least pretend I do. You, you do a good job of that, Brian. Uh, it, it's about, you know, give or take, depending on what neighborhood. You know, if you go downtown, the prices are $12,000, $50,000. My friend just rented his apartment in meatpacking for $14,000 a month. And we're hearing about bidding wars. A one-bedroom on the Upper East Side was put on the market for $5,500 last week. Within an hour, there were multiple offers, and it went for over $6,000. And this is a one-bedroom apartment on 87th Street. Um, so 87th some and what? Second Avenue. I live between on 87th between first and second when Fiona's was the bar there. That's going for I know the what? You should have bought something, Brian. What's wrong with no you? Money. I made like nineteen thousand dollars a year. Best, thank you very much. Thanks, Do appreciate Brian. the 87th Street. Where you been? <laughs> All right, by the way, tune in tomorrow morning, Squawk Box, 8 a.m. Shell CEO and I will sit down for an exclusive conversation. Thanks for watching Last Call. We'll also see you tomorrow night. Take care. Have a good one.
And welcome back. It's peanut buttery, it's chocolatey, it's the flavor merger America craved. That's right, the Peanut Butter Group and Chocolatey Corp have become one. With Chocolatey Corp bringing indulgence to the table and peanut butter's eat-anytime ability, it's easy to see how their Jif peanut butter and chocolate-flavored spread will revolutionize snacking. One stock trader even told me, and I quote, Normally I just buy and sell, but this I'm going to eat. Experience the Jif PBC hype today. 